Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is creating a pipeline for Black doctors with my guest, Dr. Cameron Matthews. We'll talk about why there's a need to diversify medicine and the efforts Cam has been working on for decades to make necessary change. I'll start by having her introduce herself. Cameron. Thank you so much, Carlos. Yes, I'm Cameron Matthews. I am a family physician by training um, and currently serve as the chief health officer with a company called City Block Health that I know we'll get into that I'm so excited to be a part of just as far as transformation in healthcare. I've really turned most of my career to focusing on vulnerable populations, underserved communities. So I started in correctional medicine, of all things, right after residency, then worked at a couple of federally qualified health centers on the west and south sides of Chicago. And then I went in and joined the leadership of Veterans Health Administration here in Washington, D.C., all before coming to City Block. But all of that just led up to uh, really what I've been calling kind of my dream job of, of really being able to help figure out uh, what this I'll say travesty is that we call the healthcare system is uh, within this country and, and hopefully will be part of the solution. I'm curious, how has being both a lawyer and a doctor helped with like correctional medicine and veterans medicine? Yeah, no, tremendously. And yeah, I always tend to leave that out of my bio. Actually, somebody pointed that out that that that's actually not in my bio. I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, I um, really felt uh, that I needed to get to another level beyond just clinical medicine, needed to understand more about healthcare and the governing systems in, in which healthcare decisions are made, whether that be at the individual patient level or by our government, who obviously loves to come into our exam rooms all the time, but we don't have to t- talk about that. Um, but, you know, I, I purposefully wanted to get to a different scale of healthcare and, and by a, by being able to be a better advocate and, and um, hopefully work on policy, uh, that was where I thought my role would be. So a mentor of mine steered me towards law school, my third year of medical school, and I've never looked back. Um, in, uh, in correctional medicine, I was at Cook County Jail at, there in Chicago, and um, clearly did not let any of my patients know I was a lawyer. I was not doing criminal law whatsoever, but it was really about advocating for them, about understanding kind of how to be um, a a better um, voice on their behalf, just understanding, you know, a little bit, you know, from my one crim law class, because <laughs> I did more con law and everything in law school, my one crim law class, I, I could understand a little bit more and um, was able to step into a leadership role uh, for our transgender patients there in Cook County and was able to actually, it was a pairing between medicine and security. And I got to make decisions that actually trumped security because 
I was I was able to to take into account the the needs of my patients, and sometimes that went beyond you know what crime they were um, accused of and the like. And and so um, for me, it it got me on that first sort of ooh, I can do more than just worry about their physical health or or even their mental health. I can think about their whole well being, and that of course includes you know what what their experience was like in 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 the jail um, at the VA. My goodness, uh, we, we could do a couple hours on that. You know, I, I really um, was fortunate enough to lead our managed care office. It's called Community Care in VA. And that's anytime a veteran needs health care outside of the VA and the VA is paying for it. So um, was able to somehow get that office turned in the right direction, um, really uh, implement this rather large piece of legislation that Congress passed and, and gave us 365 days to implement in, in wow. 2018. So I got to pass uh, or, or publish three federal regulations in 12 months, which is pretty much unheard of. Um, testified on the Hill all the time, got a lot of media sort of attention and everything. So for me, the, the law background just obviously it gave me a good foundation to approach, you know, legislative implementation and policy building and, and then ultimately operational infrastructure because I had to actually implement the program. But then it just got me very comfortable in being in that D.C. environment in the political environment as well, too. So uh, everything was serendipitous. My whole career, serendipitous. I never would have thought when I went to law school that I would have wound up doing either of those experiences, honestly. Well, and I, I think it's interesting to highlight because so many doctors I talk to are concerned about liability and concerned about the line when they're advocating. Um, and so I would imagine it is helpful to have a law degree because you know exactly where the line is or you know how to find the line. Exactly. And and I'm, I honestly have, have never felt concerned about the line because in, in my in, in my experience, uh, the line is your comfort level more than anything. I don't, I, I really have never come up against a, a barrier. If I'm advocating, for instance, for a procedure or some new medical treatment, uh, you know, maybe something that's, that's in a clinical trial for a patient or the like, and I'm really, I'm at an individual patient level, you're usually advocating for um, an insurance company to pay for it. Right. So there I'm never uncomfortable in a political setting. Sure. It, it was, it's never really been though that, Oh my goodness, I'm a physician. So I shouldn't be saying this. It was really more that I was representing the federal government for a good five years. And I could, I had to, you know, obey the hatch act and make sure I wasn't going outside of, of my space. But now, Oh, I'm, I'm nice and loud on LinkedIn as you probably see. Yes. Now she is free. So no, <laughs> she's free to tell us, you know, I, you know, I always say that we bring all of our identities. I bring my identity into the classroom. You bring your identity to work with you into the exam room when you're advocating for patients. So I'd like to set the stage by, by first talking about why is it even necessary to diversify medicine? My goodness. Um, it's such an important question and one that, um, you know, I like to say goes way beyond maybe in other fields. Um, it's, it's maybe leaning more on kind of the ethical feel good sort of argument, right? We should be diversifying because it's the right thing to do, right? It actually goes way beyond that in healthcare. In healthcare, we have the evidence, the data has been shown time and time and time again, that actually when you diversify the clinical team, you're actually meeting the needs of patients and therefore improving health outcomes. So there's an actual purposeful approach 
to health equity when you're diversifying medicine. Um, there is a, the, the description we call it is racial concordance between the physician and the patient actually leads to increased levels of trust, increased communication, increased adherence to treatment plans. And so because the patients feel more connected to us just outright, they're more likely going to work with us to, to hopefully achieve that sort of shared decision making as well as as desired outcomes. So diversifying medicine is, is hands down, not even the argument anymore, whether or not we should do it. It's really more so whether or not these health systems, these universities, all of these structures out here are willing to, to put the resources behind actually um, making the difference um, from a structural standpoint, from an institutional standpoint. Now, I'm curious to know what the numbers are like. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, and mm -hmm. it is virtually impossible to find a black doctor here. Um, or, you know, almost any doctor of color here. It's really, really hard. Um, and so, you know, I'm in a rural part of Virginia. I'm sure urban areas are different or are they like, what are the numbers like of, of, of black doctors? Definitely easier in urban areas. Um, but um, it's still, it's, it's still pretty depressing. I would say, um, for African-American physicians, um, we're about 5%, um, still that hasn't really been fluctuating, um, for our, uh, Latino and Latina brethren, they're more at the 5.8, just shy of 6%. So not ridiculous, but on an upward swing, uh, much more, um, uh, larger areas of growth, particularly in certain states uh, than we're seeing for Black physicians. And then, my goodness, we don't even need to talk about how we're not even close to the 1% for Native Americans. So those three areas are what are considered, those three uh, uh, communities are what's considered underrepresented in minorities. So not all minorities are what's considered diversity in medicine, because we do have a fair amount of Asian physicians and Middle Eastern physicians and, and of course, others. So it's really about African-American Latino and, and Native American that we focus on when we talk about diversity in medicine. Well, and I From always think an ethnicity standpoint, right? There's, right. there's other forms of diversity, but race and right. ethnicity. at least. Well, and I think it's important to point out, you know, when we're talking about 5% for African-Americans, you know, approaching 6% for Latinx and Latino, it, you know, we're, we're talking about 25, 30% of the population represented by 10 to 12% of physicians. So there's a big disparity um, so even being in a city, that doesn't mean that it is easier to find a, a physician who looks like you and understands you. Completely. Completely. And it's it's really um, not a data point that is easily accessible for the average patient. I would think maybe some of us who, um, you know, have gone to such illustrious universities as you and I did, where we have, you know, alumni connections and friends and you can ask around. Um, but then when I think of some of my patients who have absolutely no connection to to any um, friends or family members in healthcare, and they have no idea how to even start that question. How do you find a black doc? I mean, there's, yes, there's Facebook groups and there's a lot of ways to connect, but, um, then when you get down to the nitty gritty of finding a doc that you need in a specialty that you need, that can help you, you know, maybe with your condition or your concern that you need that even, it gets even more difficult. Definitely. Absolutely. I think the, the, the one good thing I'll, I'll put a shout out on, there are a couple of good startups out there that are really trying to create directories of us. Um, and, and particularly for, for um, black females, um, there's, there's a couple that I'm really proud of that are, are starting to um, get a lot of people's attention about really um, making sure that we're accessible to, to communities. Um, but 
you know, there's still few and far between. So how about the number of Black students pursuing STEM and doing what it takes to get into med school? Has that number changed at all or are we still seeing a deficit? You know, I wish I could give you an exact number. I'll say kind of anecdotally from from my exposure of of talking to students um, of, of, you know, at least being somewhat connected to kind of education. um, I'm not necessarily seeing increased numbers interested in STEM. There is some evidence of increased numbers of both black and brown communities interested in going into medicine, public health. And that's actually due to, or maybe not a causal relationship, but through the COVID pandemic, there's been increased numbers of students applying to public health degrees, medical school from black and brown communities. And in in my mind, that's because they're seeing the evidence right in front of them, right? They, maybe they felt it through their families, how they've interacted with the healthcare system, felt the inequities, but now they're actually recognizing they can do something about it um, and that they're needed. So I'm, I'm, I was so proud to see those numbers. There were a couple articles um, last year that really highlighted that. So increased numbers, but nowhere near enough getting accepted, actually matriculating. And then, of course, we need to talk about being retained and actually graduating. Um, So, yeah, we're not there yet. I saw an article recently that said that there were fewer Black men in med school now than there were 20 years ago. Um, And that the numbers in some areas for med school specifically are declining. Um, Is that true across the board with with communities of color? Is it like a black male specific thing? It's it's a black male specific thing. Uh, Unfortunately, black females, we've we've seen increased numbers, um, but black males dropped off. I forget what year it was. I think it was maybe the the late 20 teens or mid 20 teens um there were only 100 black men matriculating in med school that entering year i mean it was something abominable that was the the bottom hopefully of the curve hopefully it won't dip uh even more but no it's it's atrocious i mean there's um uh very little support there's very um I think minimal resources, when you really think about the pathway into medicine, this is a marathon, right? To to be able to have, as your question was, to to have the background in STEM to really be able to then proceed, you know, through an undergraduate career that has the the good uh, mentoring and, and science background to actually get you, you know, on a path into medical school. If indeed you go straight to that four-year school, right? So many of our students are, are needing to to go to other degrees, maybe even go into military service and take some time and, and really have what's considered a non-traditional path before they consider medicine. There's, there's um, very little support for those students that are not um, focused at that typical four-year college experience. And, and then medical schools really don't reach out beyond their traditional areas of recruitment. Um, so the support of really making sure not only that they have the science and the mentoring, but the test-taking skills necessary, the interviewing skills necessary, um, time management skills. I mean, this is this is a holistic set of, of skills that need to be developed that unfortunately a lot of our students don't uh, receive either in home or in their schools. And that's a travesty. So is, is this a thing just with med school or is it with all health professionals, right? Is it, are we seeing declines in nurses and nurse practitioners and, and other and physical therapists or is, is it kind of just at the top? It is definitely still a problem in the other healthcare fields. I would definitely say it's probably just because of the, the length of a course 
into medicine, it's it's definitely more difficult. And a lot of students, unfortunately, look at these other healthcare fields, which are just as critical, but they look at it as their second choice, right? So if I can't get into medicine, I'm going to consider one of these other paths. So at least there's there's those other opportunities where they can you know, be caught hopefully and supported and mentored to, to stay in, in other fields. But for medicine, unfortunately, there isn't, there isn't a second choice either. You make it or you don't. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, I, I, I would say, I can't quote you the numbers, but I would say that the, the, the numbers are worse in medicine. Um, dentistry, pharmacy, still very difficult. We actually, in, in my nonprofit work, we actually include these other fields and it is just as, just as difficult, um, uh, to when you're looking at the numbers of us matriculating in the schools and, and we are just as equally needed across the entire healthcare team because we all serve a role. So I think that's, that's one of the, the hard pieces, especially when you're talking about these schools that maybe don't have the right again, guidance counselors and preparation for, for students to really aim into healthcare. They don't even have the exposure that there's many other healthcare fields that they could be even looking at that they should be considering. Because again, they, they just don't have that bandwidth, unfortunately, uh, in those schools to, to make sure that students are exposed. Now let's get into some specific programs you've been involved in over the years and your nonprofit work. Um, could you tell us what the tour for diversity in medicine is and also like what motivated you to, to start this organization or be a part of the start of it? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the tour, as we call it, was kind of a, a, a um, love of mine that I, I really uh, have been <laughs> pushing at. I'm, I'm thinking back the years now, back to 2005 was when we originally came up with the idea. Um, my, my friend and I, uh, we, we founded this idea after working in another student organization, kind of like Balsa in law school. We got the Student National Medical School in medicine and sorry, Student National Medical Association, SNMA. And we were both national officers and really realized that so much of the recruitment, so much of the, the pre-med focus that we did in SNMA was around medical schools because we we're all medical students. And so our bandwidth, again, was pretty uh, uh, narrow as far as how much time we had or what students we could reach. And we really started thinking to ourselves, if we're going to diversify healthcare, we need to go out and find these students. They're not going to be seeking us out. If we're going to diversify healthcare, we need to introduce healthcare to those areas, like I just mentioned, where it's not even considered an option, where there is no mentoring. They don't maybe even have a hospital where there could be exposure or, or mentoring. Um, and so we decided one night um, on the phone, and yes, there were drinks involved. We were like, we should just get on the bus. We should just go find these students. And that's literally how the idea got formed. We didn't start traveling because we didn't have funding or didn't know what we were doing for another seven years or so. So our first trip um, down through the South was in 2012. And so we've been traveling the country now for 10 years. We've been to 27 states. We've had more than 3,500 3, students in our in-person programming, and then more than 5,000 or so in all of our virtual programming. And the idea is you can't be what you can't see, right? I, I keep emphasizing the mentoring piece. If all you see is somebody like a Dr. Cosby, right? Like, my goodness, that's like the worst <laughs> choice now, right? But if that's the only option that you see of a doctor that that maybe looks like someone like you, right? And there's really no connection to your reality. How would I even consider being that, right? It's the same in law. It's the same in a lot of our fields, right? You can't be what you can't see. You need to have someone in front of you as a role model, as a mentor, 
and someone that can connect with you, someone not just on a screen more than anything. So with the tour, we bring about maybe 10 to 14 black and brown docs, dentists, pharmacists, young, like, you know, hopefully, well, I was young at one point, but young and, and enough so that our students can connect with them. And, and we talk to high school and college students around the country and and just motivate them, try to give them the real deal that we're not perfect. A couple of us failed out of college. We didn't score well on our MCAT tests and even SATs at all, many of us. Mentors told us, no, you couldn't do it. No, it's not possible. No, you're not smart enough. But yet we're all practicing and here we are, that they need to see that medicine, dentistry, and pharmacy is an option. So we've had fun with it. It's my passion. It's, it's uh, you know, what, what, fills up my evening hours outside of, uh, you know, my regular work, but it's worth it. You know, it's interesting when I think about, you know, you gave the Cosby show example, which is, has not aged well, but I think about when, when we were kids, you know, we had Ben Carson. Like I remember when Ben Carson came to my high school or no, it was middle school. Actually, Ben Carson came to our middle school. We all read gifted hands. We all wanted to be brain surgeon. I was like, I could be a brain surgeon like Ben Carson or, you know, in, 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 in law, it was like, I could be like Thurgood Marshall, right. Was the example for years, but we really, really only had those one or two examples that were on TV and, or that were, you know, it was like Ben Carson was a God to us for a while. Right. Yeah. But it was like, oh my God. And, but, but I think what was so appealing about Ben Carson's narrative was, you know, grew up in, in, in a single parent home, grew up poor. And it was like, wait, if he could do it, everybody can do it was, was how we felt, but we don't have that modern example anymore. So I think what you are doing is so, so important because I can't think of who the, like, who is the doctor that you looked, that the kids now look to other than you and your tour. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a lot of pipeline programs like ours uh, across the country. And and I, I love we don't look at none of that can be competitive. Right. We're all necessary. We all need to reach students in our communities and the like. I think we have had the fortune of having some some great attention, some great acknowledgement and, and have kind of a, a national push. So I love that we're just going to keep doing this. We're hoping to get to the uh, Midwest, uh, Illinois, Wisconsin, hopefully uh, mid-2023, late spring, mid-2023, um, and then just keep traveling. Our goal is to get to all the 50 states and and just recording and coming up with more content, expanding our workshops. Like a, a lot of what we did, again, virtually through the pandemic was, was try to answer a lot of students' questions. And we ended up turning those into workshops. So what was it like to practice medicine during COVID-19? Why was it so important that we were there as opposed to some of our other colleagues? Like, how do you even think about race and ethnicity in medicine in something like the pandemic in a public health emergency like that? And so we had those very frank conversations. We talk about cultural competence, cultural humility, where yes, it's important to diversify the workforce that you need to have that racial concordance. But at the same time, we're not releasing our colleagues from their account accountability either, that every single person within healthcare needs to understand what it is to be humble in the face of someone's identity and that you need to have your own sense of, of um, uh, really humbleness to be able to work with patients. It's a very private relationship. It's one based on, on trust and, and without that humbleness of understanding your own culture, how you define it, and then how you may project and hopefully prevent that projection in the future to the patients that you're treating. That's so critical. And so all of our colleagues need that. So we start, we start these workshops. We start really just 
pulling students in as early as possible. Um, we, we even have had some junior high students um, come into our workshops and just really ask great questions. They are so smart and, and have um, a real focus on, I think because they've been through experiences over these past couple of years, a real focus on what they need, what their families need. And, and so hopefully our programming has has given them some insight and the motivation because we laugh, we joke around, like they also need to know we're real people, right? And that we have families and that um, we were just as devastated during the pandemic and, and that we have behavioral health issues as well. We talk very frankly about how most of us are in therapy. We've got debt, we're paying our bills off. Like we, all of their concerns that may come to mind when they go into medicine or when they hear about the difficulty and everything, we're very open and honest about because we need them to understand, yes, we're human. Um, but yes, it's possible. Now, let's say it's a, it's a prospective med student who's, you know, out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, does not have the guidance, counseling and mentoring and support. How can they find out more about the tour? Yeah, we are all over social media. I think we uh, uh, are having a, a, a lot of fun with it. We're still not on TikTok. I think we're we're, we're trying to figure out how to get on there, but we're all over Instagram and, and um, Twitter and, and Facebook, although nobody really uses that one anymore, but we're doing as much as possible to post content, even kind of live, uh, IG live sort of uh, events where we just interview each other and try to share our stories and the like. So um, most of our programming now is, is just highlighted on our social media. So students just follow at Tour for Diversity, and it's the number four, Tour for Diversity. Um, we're everywhere. You can find us. Um, and like I said, we'll we'll start getting in person again. We'll get back on the bus. That's what we keep saying. We're going to get back on the bus, um, hopefully in 2023, you know, obviously for, for other reasons and financial reasons. It's expensive to get around the country and, and yeah. fundraising is uh, not exactly my favorite thing to do. So we, uh, we're going to get back on that bus as soon as we can. Um, but until then, we're reaching more and more students, even globally, um, through our virtual program. So we'll keep doing that. I'd like to go backwards a little bit and talk about what it takes to get into, me- into medical school. Um, you know, what should, you know, you mentioned uh, middle school. And I remember when I was in middle school, um, you know, we kind of had counselors, even when I was in middle school, who said, if you think you want to go to med school, you need to try to take algebra in middle school. And you need to try to make sure that you've gotten through like physics in high school. And so I had someone saying that to me in the sixth grade. I know not everyone has that. Um, I was at a GNT middle school, so it was a little, it was leveled up and a little bit intense. But, you know, for people who are not at an intense middle school or high school, you know, for, for optimal preparation, what should they be doing in high school? What should they be doing in college to be medical school ready? I think the one thing I'll emphasize is there's no single path into medicine. And, and it's been shown time and time again um, that the traditional or sorry, the non-traditional is becoming more traditional in the sense that we've got plenty of students who may not come from the school, like you mentioned, that had the ability to have algebra and, and even calculus by the time you get to high school, those sciences and everything. Maybe you can't even afford, maybe it's not the school you had, the classes that you have available, but you can't afford to get into that four-year college. And so maybe you need to think about a junior college, a community college, things like that. Um, all of that is possible to go into medical school. So it's really not so much about what do you need to do when, it's just how are you going to get that coursework in at some point, right? So we have plenty of students who uh, have been through community college, maybe even have a full associate's degree, end up going back to four-year college, 
taking their sciences and, and then getting um, obviously prepared through the MCAT and the like um, to get into medical school. It's actually an increasing age. When you look at the matriculating students into medical school, the average age has been increasing. So more students have been coming in through a non-traditional path where they either took time off after college, didn't go to college right away and the like. So in high school, yes, you should aim for as, as high uh, and, and rigorous of course work as possible. So getting up through algebra and, and calculus um, is, is usually something, not because you need calculus whatsoever, my goodness, no one uses that in the actual practice of medicine, um, but it's because of the level of rigor that calculus to then get you to physics, to then get you to the upper level sciences that you will definitely need in college. Unfortunately, the, the college coursework is quite robust as far as the set of requirements, but specific majors are not required. I was a public policy major, so I was pretty much on the path of going to law school anyway early on. But it's really about having that physics, having that organic chemistry, ugh, having that biology, having basic chemistry, having a year of calculus in college. And then um, some schools require biochemistry. So if you're thinking of that coursework in college, you definitely need to have those upper level math and science classes in high school in order to get there. Now, again, if you did not do that in high school, if you can't do that right now, it is possible to just proceed through the classes that you can get to in college and then do what's called a post-baccalaureate program, a post-bac program, where you're taking those upper level college classes in a either sometimes a degree program or just coursework after you've already gotten your college degree. Those count towards medical schools. And post-bac programs also have a lot of other support and mentoring to actually get you ready for medical school as well. So there's a lot of options. We talk to students all the time that are worried about doing things at the right time. It's not about the right time when you take a class, it's about the right time when you're gonna be prepared enough to really be able to absorb that information. Uh, and then hopefully do well in the coursework enough so that you'll be prepared for the MCAT and then, of course, prepared for medical school. And, you know, I, I'd like to emphasize what you said about postbacs. I also have friends who did master's. I have friends who were like me in English majors in college. I was like English and AFAM studies. I took no science. I took calculus, but I wasn't taking real science. And I know of people who were like me who took no real science in college and either did like a master's in public health and made sure they did the hard sciences or they did a post-bac program and did the, the upper level science and math that they needed and then went on to med school. Um, and I think it's important to emphasize like the door is not closed because you quote unquote did something wrong. There is no doing things wrong. There is no doing things wrong completely. Um, I, I think that's that's one of the more frustrating pieces about our, our kind of pre-med path typically is that there's a, a lot of advisors that want students to stay on a very traditional path. Um, there's a lot more that are, are more flexible and really will help the students, but it's definitely difficult once you've graduated from college, because a lot of times our students don't know how to find that advising, right? They're no longer connected to campus. Maybe they haven't been successful in getting into a post back program. So there are plenty of online resources. We do a lot on the tour to try to reach those non-traditional students as well. But again, when we're thinking about who we need in the healthcare workforce, who I need to be a doctor, I'd rather have someone that has other experiences, maybe needed to work through college, maybe needed to go into a whole nother career to then come back and know that this is what they wanna do and how they're gonna help their patients 
those are the physicians that we need to help our communities, to be honest, especially if they look like our communities, but more importantly, that they have experiences that can be really applicable. So I, I actually love helping the non-traditional students because I think they're going to be stronger once they get into medicine. I agree. I agree. Um, and I, I should say, too, I know that there are some post back programs, people are wondering, well, how do we pay for this? You know, with the student loan debt crisis, there are mm-hmm. post back programs out there geared towards students of color that um, pay for tuition or that give stipends or that that give the support that you need to. So don't think that you're going to spend a hundred hundreds of thousands of dollars anymore before you get to med school. No. Now that's that's exactly it. There's there's a lot of support out there. Um, it's about you know having the initiative to to ask around and to find those questions um, and and to get creative with kind of scholarship work to um, really think through and hopefully be wise around loan repayment as well too. As much as that is a difficult and stressful piece, I also want our students to be smarter about it and and to be aware that like I'm still paying off my debt. The most of us are. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just not possible to go through. So I don't want students to be afraid of that and turn down an opportunity just because they're scared of of what school loans might bring them. Um, it's it's difficult for a lot of students to understand kind of the weight of that debt. So I, I, I do a lot of talking with students about what it means and how it looks in the long term and everything. Yes, I am still paying. I may never finish paying my loans. There are moments when I'm like, yeah. I really don't want to, to be honest. It's the best interest you'll ever get. That's my whole thing. Why would I rush to pay this off? <laughs> I'm going to put yeah. money into real estate more than I'm going to pay off my loans. That's how exactly. I look at it. Exactly. I do the same. Like whenever someone's like, I paid off all my loans. Why are they doing loan forgiveness? I often say, why'd you pay off all your loans? If you had a if you had a two percent interest rate, I understand that people younger than us have higher interest rates, but exactly. you know there, yeah. If you graduated when we graduated, it is it is still the lowest interest rate I have ever had in my life. So There's, I will hold these until the end. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now I'd like to get to get into some of the other work that you've done to improve healthcare outcomes and your current employer, uh, City Block Health. So what is it that City Block Health does? So City Block is a transformative uh, healthcare practice. We provide integrated primary care and behavioral health and actual social care uh, for Medicaid and dual eligible programs. So dual eligible means Medicaid and Medicare. So those low income seniors, um, which is Medicare. Um, It's a value-based practice in the sense that we are not Um, paying for care in the traditional methods, which is what's called fee-for-service. So when you go see a doctor now, your doctor gets paid for that visit. If you go get admitted to the hospital, that hospital and the doctors that you get see gets paid for that bed for every night that you're in there or every visit that the doctor comes in and may see you. They build essentially when you're sick. If you weren't sick, you wouldn't be coming in. If you didn't need to get hospitalized, meaning you had a a difficult enough problem, then you wouldn't, they wouldn't get paid. And so for a lot of us, we see that as misaligned incentives. The healthcare system shouldn't be based on the fact that patients need to remain sick 
for the business model to work. So instead with value-based care, the concept is that we are focusing more on outcomes for patients. We'd rather get paid when you are well. We'd rather get paid when we're improving your healthcare. Um, So what we do from a business model standpoint is we arrange with your health insurance company, with particular health insurance companies, not all of them yet, (laughs) um, but we arrange to accept what's called risk. So sort of insurance risk And we are managing our patients more to keep them healthy, to keep them out of the hospital. So we're trying to decrease the costs for these patients while also improve their health outcomes. And so the incentives are in line. So it's aligned. So it's based on value. um, And it's based most importantly on their experience. Um, Our company, obviously, in focusing on Medicaid and and low-income Medicare, we are treating probably 77% of our patients are from black and brown communities. We purposefully therefore have care teams that are upwards of 70% black and brown. And so we're focused on health equity. We're focused on making sure that we're meeting their needs, not just from a physical health standpoint, but like I said, with social care. So I'm going to worry about and be able to pay for if they need food because they have food insecurity, if they have difficulty with housing or transportation or broadband access and the like, because all of that impacts healthcare. Those social determinants of health are unfortunately not something that the traditional healthcare um, system can pay for. They screen for it. They refer patients out. Oh, you need to get this address because it's impacting your healthcare, but they're not able to do anything about it. In our practice, we are able to do that. We're able to support our patients fully. So I find it refreshing to, step away from the rest of healthcare and really think about how we're going to improve and transform healthcare in a, in a different type of care model, a different type of business model more than anything. So are y'all like, um, cause I think about like, I, I basically feel like I serve as my parents' healthcare concierge as they've gotten mm-hmm. older, right. With like, you know, trying to coordinate their doctor's visits and trying to coordinate testing and when they have surgery and their deductibles and, you know, making sure they've signed up for all the right types of insurance. Um, Are y'all doing that as well for, for these low income patients? We do a fair amount of that. Yes. So we are there to coordinate their care, to connect the dots, navigate them to their different specialists. Sometimes we're also their primary care. So we're a primary care practice. So sometimes we're their doctor, but sometimes we're not. Sometimes they stay with their primary care doc. Uh, in the community. So we will work with their primary care practice and maybe fill in the gaps that that primary care practice can't provide. So for instance, most primary care practices aren't integrated with behavioral health. So we have psychiatry, psychology, everything in our practice. So we'll provide that to the patients. We also have clinical pharmacy programs. Typically in our communities, the only pharmacists you see are the pharmacists that are dispensing meds, right? At the, at the corner pharmacy. I'm talking about clinical pharmacists that are helping us with our patients are actually part of the care team, educating the patients, making sure they're on the right dosages, using the right medicines in the first place, just really optimizing medication management. That's part of our care team as well. We have palliative care. We're doing the work for social determinants, like we said, because again, the average primary care practice can't do anything about if you have poor um, housing, right? They really can't do anything if your lights get turned off. We're actually going to be able to help with that. So we see ourselves as kind of... It's probably hard to to think about, but we're filling in all the holes that the rest of the healthcare system either can't do something about, aren't getting paid for, or unfortunately, it just doesn't exist because no one's really there with you. 
once you leave your primary care's office and need to go to the specialist or need to go to the ED, you don't really have someone in the healthcare system like yourself, Carlos, like you said, that you're kind of helping your, pa- your parents and filling out paperwork and doing everything. There's not anybody else by your side to do that. So we can do that, but we can also do a lot of your medical care. You know, I'd like to go back to behavioral health because I, I think a lot of people do not realize that both traditional health insurance and Medicare and Medicaid can pay for counseling services for psychological care. So um, could you let, let folks know, you know, what kind of services people who are on Medicare and Medicaid have access to? They have access to all of really the, the evidence-based care that they would need. But let me caveat that access, meaning it can be paid for through the programs of either Medicaid or Medicare access, meaning that there's actually someone available in your community that's going to take that Medicaid. That's the difficult part. Um, unfortunately, a lot of, well, one, there's a lot of a capacity issue as we've seen during the pandemic. It's, it's pretty much hard to find um, therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists who are, uh, you know, taking new patients nowadays because their practices are just filled to the brim. There's not enough of them graduating point blank, let alone if we're talking about black and brown communities, right? Just in general, there's not enough behavioral health workforce. Um, so one, capacity is low there, so access is limited. But then two, the number that are actually taking Medicaid, so many of them take out of pocket, like do not take insurance because unfortunately Medicaid and Medicare do not pay as well. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these practices end up limiting or excluding completely how they're treating Medicaid communities. So while it's available through the programs, a lot of our communities still have difficulty accessing, um, not only um, because there's not that capacity, like I just described, but a lot of the kind of cultural competence around how they're actually treating our patients that are traumatized um, uh, through any uh, number of, of issues that they're facing in their communities. A lot of our patients um, unfortunately, are, are facing substance use disorder and a lot of other things that low-income communities are unfortunately facing without having the ability to then find treatment easily. I mean, if you're wealthy and you have a substance use disorder, you can go to a rehab center at the drop of a hat, right? There's always going to be somewhere you can go find treatment. Those are not as available in our communities because, again, the payment by insurance companies is not as good. So they're not looking to help our communities because it's not a business model that meets their needs, unfortunately. So we're trying to do as much as possible in City Block. That's why we offer it as part of our practice. We don't want you to have to go seek out where these um, therapists and rehab programs and the like are. We offer all of that treatment within our practice ourselves, as well as your primary care, as well as hopefully helping you with other social needs. Um, So we're trying to be that one-stop shop. You know, I have a lot of international listeners who are probably totally confused <laughs> about why your business is even necessary in a U.S. healthcare system. So I, I would love for you to just, I mean, as briefly as you can, <laughs> explain okay. why. I mean, I'm sure you could write a dissertation on this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why is a business like yours even necessary? If we've got this public health kind of system with Medicare and Medicaid that's supposed to be a safety net for people and supposed to service the elderly, you know, how, how is a service like yours even necessary in our healthcare system? Yeah, I think um, the complexity of our healthcare system and the lack of, I'll, I'll call it kind of interoperability of all the pieces of our healthcare system 
are, is really where a practice like mine that really seeks to coordinate services for patients, it becomes necessary. So you could have a primary care practice, sure, that takes Medicaid. Um, the federally qualified health centers that I mentioned that I they used to work at in Chicago, that's a, a huge um, um, set of practices across the country that really focuses on both Medicaid and uninsured patients. They really do take care of low-income communities around the country. You could have that practice, but that practice may have real difficulty again, having capacity for, for behavioral health, they probably don't have a pharmacist. They probably don't in any sort of way have the ability to help you figure out how you're gonna you know, get your next meal or afford your next housing and things like that. A lot of FQHCs do a lot of work as much as possible, but again, they're often short staffed with that sort of social work, that sort of social care that their patients need because the payment structure for most of the healthcare system within the U.S. is, again, that fee for service. So as much as they want to connect the dots and coordinate and, and have a nurse navigate patients, do all this stuff, they don't get paid for that. All they get paid for is that doctor's visit. Mm-hmm. So the emphasis is 100% on increasing that productivity, that doctor productivity, or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. It depends on the state. It depends on everything. Um, but there's no payment structure out there for all of these other services, that kind of concierge, that kind of navigation that, that you said you're, you're doing yourself, Carlos. There's no payment structure for that. So it's not emphasized. So hospitals don't offer it because once the patient gets discharged, it's not my responsibility anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's frustrating. We are so necessary because no one's connecting the dots. And then, oh my goodness, we don't have to talk, even talk about the fact because we're all different healthcare systems, we're all on different electronic health records. So the data doesn't pass between hospitals and practices and specialty offices and emergency departments. So the patient is stuck with sharing the information between all of that. We're just a completely disconnected system. So yes, there's these public programs but it doesn't really dig into how the actual healthcare is being delivered. Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, every time I talk to someone in Europe, they're like, what? <laughs> they're like, this, this doesn't make sense at all. Like you have, you have a public health system. Like why are people still sick? Why are people, you know, lacking care? Why can you only really get treated when you go to the hospital in the U S? Um, and so I think, you know, there's, there's this disconnect and we also have 50 States, so we can have 50 different forms yeah. of payment in 50 different healthcare systems. So it makes it just very, very difficult. Yeah. I'll, I'll also say that the other big piece and what we're, you know, clearly as a, a primary care practice really emphasizing is as a nation, our healthcare system really doesn't, un, um, doesn't emphasize the importance of primary care. We're pretty much a, a tertiary care healthcare system, which is like you just said, when you get sick, you can go to the doctor, but there's really no emphasis. We don't pay enough. We don't train enough primary care practices so that you have someone who is advocating for you, who is worried about preventing you from getting sick in the first place, Mm -hmm. about knowing you, about having that continuity relationship, about hopefully being that, you know, um, first step into healthcare. The average patient in this country doesn't have a primary care doc, and they're often going to the emergency department when they need something that could really be taken care of in a primary care setting. Um, At least my friends in other countries, they, 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 largest difference is just our emphasis on these big hospitals, these tons of surgeries and fancy specialists and the like, um, when really the average patient just needs a good primary care doc. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I always say in my 20s, I used urgent care as my primary care doctor in part because I didn't have time, right? Yeah. So if I got strep throat or I, it was just like, I got time to go to urgent care, especially when I was practicing law. I have time and to go to urgent care at midnight. <laughs> and that's yeah. what I have time no, to do. And that's the thing. I'll, I'll take that on. No, in primary care, that's one of the things that um, I think is is absolutely unacceptable that primary care practices still work on like this nine to five, maybe an occasional evening. Like our patients need us available evenings and weekends, mm-hmm. especially um, when I'm talking about low income communities where they often don't have PTO, right? They can't take medical leave in any sort of way. They're having to leave their job, sometimes multiple jobs to come to the doctor's office to sit in there just for 15 minutes. That's ridiculous. It's actually, I would say, causing increased stress in every sort of way and and really threatening their well-being by expecting them to step away from their jobs to come in to see us. Why don't we offer more? We should be offering more evenings, weekends. That's why urgent care has jumped up because basically our patients are voting with their feet. They're not coming to primary care because we're not available for them. Yeah. Well, and I always think about stuff whenever I go to the doctor, um, here in Charlottesville, it is free to park at the doctor's office, which was revolutionary to me because in Houston, I remember like it could be 40 or $50 to park, to go to the doctor's office. Yes. Huge issue, huge issue throughout the VA as well, too. I remember the, the parking spot dilemma at some of our medical centers around the country. Yeah. It's, it's a huge problem. It's a barrier to care. We need to decrease all barriers to care um, instead of finding a way to shift the responsibility, the cost to our patients. We've really, unfortunately, done that a great deal. All right. So now how can people sign up for, the, for your services if they want to join CityBlock Health or have CityBlock managing their health care? Unfortunately, we're not open enrollment. So uh. we only take patients from specific health insurance companies that we have contracts with. So currently we're in New York D.C., North Carolina, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Ohio, and Indiana just opened in the past couple of weeks. And we've got a couple of more states opening up. So uh, if we are available to you, actually, we'll call you. Don't worry about finding us. We are reaching out to every single member uh, that is assigned to us through the insurance partners that we have um, because it's, it's our responsibility. We are accountable for these patients. So when you hear about City Black, please uh, uh, stay on the line and find out more because a lot of our patients, you know, need to learn more about us before they recognize really what benefit we're able to provide. And I just want to emphasize that, right? Because I think, again, I, I help manage my parents' lives, lives now as they've gotten older. There are so many robocalls from scams, I think, for people who are on Medicare, right? There are so many... City Block is one of those places that is not a scam, right? Um, we are not a scam. <laughs> right, yes. right. And I think it would help, you know, how can how can patients or people know when they're getting a call that is real? Are y'all asking for people's social security numbers on the phone? Like what kind of content? Yeah. No, not at all. So we're actually preceding all phone calls with mailings from their health insurance company. So you actually, and, and it, it'll have our logo along with their health insurance company. Um, and, and you'll have information there saying that we're calling. We're usually going to reach out by text message as well as phone calls. So you're going to have a, a couple of different options to communicate with us. Um, we also offer, you know, virtual calls at home visits, actually. So that's the one thing that we're really quite proud of. We are not just an office visit where, again, we're expecting people to come to us. 
um, in all of our markets, we offer home visits where we're actually going to come and meet you and answer your questions and take care of your needs. I have a lot of patients, uh, particularly here in DC, that really feel uncomfortable with the home visit. We're meeting them on park benches and we're just having conversations with them. Um, We have a mobile van. We park it at different uh, places kind of in Southeast and, and Northeast and our patients come meet us at the mobile van and the like. So, um, we're doing different ways, different marketing as well. We just released a new logo in the past couple of weeks and everything. We want people to see city block and know us more. Um, but we, we definitely are a partner with insurance companies and definitely would not ask for any information, uh, without, um, you having more comfort level about who we are and, and why we're calling. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's important just generally to know, when someone is legitimate business, they're going to identify themselves and they're going to identify themselves properly. Um, it's when someone is scamming you, they give you no info, right? So, mm-hmm. so just take note of that when you're getting calls, you know, if you are on Medicare or Medicaid, if someone starts the call by asking you for lots of information, it is probably not a legitimate business. Um, so just be careful. All right. So now I'd like to close uh, with letting folks know about your role as an Aspen Institute Health Innovators Fellow. Um, You know, what's the goal of Aspen Institute and, and what have you been working on as a fellow? Yeah, I love it. Um, so I, I literally just got appointed and actually haven't started my fellowship yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm excited about, what I'm, I'm really looking to use the Aspen Institute, what I'm learning from it, the network that I'm going to have from it is to expand actually my, my work with the tour. I, I really want this to become, you know, something that, that is eventually institutionalized, maybe somewhere with a strong partner and just thinking about how the tour can be a leader in, in diversity and healthcare. That's that's my personal goal within within the fellowship. But the Aspen Institute in general is about fostering leadership. So to get accepted as a fellow, you you actually go through um, several sessions out in Aspen over a couple of years uh, where you work with your cohort, your group um, uh, to really refine your project and and to learn from each other and to focus on kind of the ideals of a good society and and really being in kind of a thought provoking space. So I love the idea of being part of a fellowship where I can think about innovation, where I can think about transformation. I love that, you know, my career has turned to that, but now I have a, a personal space to, to really focus on that as well too. So I'm, I, I can't believe I got accepted into the Aspen Institute. So I'm just so excited. My first trip out there is actually like October 30th, like the day before awesome. Halloween. Awesome. Um, I can believe you were accepted. So um, as can all of your friends, but um, I I find a lot of my guests on my show have more humility than they should. Um, But you do all the things. So you should never be surprised when you are accepted into something because, you know, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's pretty cool. And honestly, the class that I got accepted into, but it's that that was more like, wow, these people have done a lot. I mean, yeah, I've done uh, I've done a great deal. But uh, what's going to be amazing is to sit with these individuals for the next couple of years and get to know them and learn from them and hope hopefully you know teach them something of my own. Uh, that's that's the best part of these sort of fellowships, these networking sort of opportunities. Um, so yeah, professionally, you know, there's a handful of them out there. There's like what. I have a couple of friends who've done presidential leadership 
presidential library leadership or something. That's another one. Um, Bunch of friends uh, that have done White House fellowships and things like that. Like you get accepted into these programs for this kind of individual experience, but then you wind up with this network for growth that is just amazing. So I definitely recommend people look for as many of these opportunities as possible. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, especially with the work that you've been doing, you know, since we were in college, even with like, you know, NAACP work back then, right? You know, the kind of work that you are doing deserves a stage. And I think it is important for people to know all the things that you do, not just what you do in your day job. So I think it, it is it is a great opportunity um, and they have benefited from having you even, even before you start. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> all right. So my last question, I like to do a lot of future predictions and, you know, kind of give my guests a chance to say like, you know, if I had a magic wand or I could rub a genie, what would I do? So my question for you is, in your opinion, what would an equitable health system look like? Um, And the follow-up to that is universal healthcare automatically the solution or you do have other ideas uh, for a solution? Um, I... Well, you know, the second question is a little bit easier. I I do believe in kind of a a baseline of universality that we need to have in healthcare. I think everyone needs to have a primary care relationship. I think everyone should have uh, the ability to prevent future illness. So, you know, whether that's general, obviously public health education, so you understand nutrition and the importance of oral health and, and everything so that we can prevent chronic disease long-term. I definitely think at baseline, we need to set up that primary care structure. Um, I definitely think we as well need to have these public programs to support more of the private industry um, that uh, unfortunately does tend to have a, a financial tinge to their incentives. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily in favor of a fully public option because I do see the importance of kind of innovation like my company is doing. It's, it's not as easily done being that I came from government before this. <laughs> that innovation is not as easily done when you're thinking of just a wholly government program. So I'm, I'm probably you know, in the middle there, I do believe in universal healthcare, but I don't think it's a, a single public option that, that we need to be leaning towards. Um, I think for us to truly have health equity, we need more than just access. We need, I, I heard this, I'm, I totally stole this. Um, we need the agency to actually use that access. So if you don't have the resources to, again, take off work, to be able to get to your doctor's appointment, to pay for the parking there, to understand what information they're sharing with you, to be able to pay for the meds even after you know deductibles and co-payments and all the madness, the confusion of healthcare. If you don't have the ability to actually use the access that is given you, um, then it's all for naught. So for me, it's about making sure that there's increased agency um, for specific communities and actually targeting what those resources are and, and expanding it beyond just, um, you get to see a doctor every once in a while, you know, like it's got to go beyond medical care. It's got to focus on larger wellbeing. Um, and so equity, equity to me is, is not just access. It's about having the resources to be able to use that access. You know, your, your agency comments reminds me of the COVID vaccines um, and how even though COVID vaccines were free, there were so many populations that were not vaccinated because they couldn't afford to take off work 
or they couldn't risk getting sick from the COVID vaccine. And I think COVID just hammered home your point, right? Yeah. Like it, it doesn't matter if you can't access healthcare because your livelihood is at risk from accessing healthcare. There we go. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, thank you all for tuning in to Getting Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere podcasts are played, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and also on our Voice America website. We also have a YouTube channel that is called Getting Common. Feel free to email me through the show page or reach out on social media. I am at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you again for listening. And thank you, Cameron, for joining me. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.